Hey Susquehanna Valley Church, thank you again for joining us and we're excited at what we hope is our last Sunday before we can get back together. And so we're really, really excited about that. We sent some information out this week. Just remember, if you have any questions about anything, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. Um, the church office would be glad to help you. I'd personally be glad to answer any questions you have as we look forward to being able to get, get back together again and just, just enjoy being in the same room praising God together. So looking forward to that. Hey, today we kick off a new series that we've entitled I Will, um, and it's built on, on a premise that all of us somewhat naturally uh, as human beings have this desire to sort of pick out something in life and act like it's the greatest thing in life. There's something that we want to run after. There's something we want to celebrate. There's something that we need and we crave. Um, and what the scripture teaches us is that that's a desire to worship something. Now, we as human beings, we get that wrong a lot, and we'll, we'll crave and we'll celebrate and we'll chase after a human being, another person. We'll chase after a job or a career or a financial position. We'll chase after all sorts of things as if they're the ultimate thing, that, that they're sort of the end-all, be-all in life. And if we have it, if we have it, then life will be perfect. But what we find is, if you actually genuinely get it, we'll begin to see the flaws, we'll begin to be disappointed, and it won't live up to the standards because nothing... Nothing was meant to be worshipped the way that God is. And so I will is built on this idea that, that we are designed to worship, and I think specifically designed to worship God. Whatever you're, wh whenever you have this sort of emptiness in your life, I think you're always wise to first say, is there, is there a problem with my worship? Have I been chasing after, have I been running after something that's not God? But what the scripture teaches us is that worship isn't just a desire to be in love with and infatuated with God, but it's worship carries over into actions on the backside of that. So it's God, you're ultimate, you're, you're what I chase after, you're what I run after. And so because you, because you are who you are, I will do this in life. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the Psalms and we're going to look at these statements about that the psalmist makes about God and about how incredible he is and how he's going to run after and chase after, depend on God more than anything else. And because of that, they're going to make statements that say, I will trust God or I will not fear. And, and different statements, I will not fear is actually the one we're going to be looking at today in Psalm chapter 3, uh, where he's going to go, God, you're my protector. I will not fear. If you think about fear, fear is a fascinating thing to really just sit down and say, what am I actually afraid of? And, and I know uh, tough guys don't always like to sit down and say, what am I afraid of? But I want us to be a people that can think about just about anything. Think about things and say, why do I feel that way? Why do I think that way? Why do people say this? Why do they say that? For me to have a mind that's not afraid to think about things like, what am I afraid of? Why do I have fear? You know, I've been doing uh, pre-marriage counseling and marriage counseling for oh, probably 15 years now. And I've noticed uh, through that time certain patterns that exist from one marriage to another to another. They might look a little different, but the same trends are there in a lot of the marriages that I end up counseling. And, and so, uh, so, for instance, I started to notice and really ask the question, how does fear influence our behavior in our treatment of the person that we live with? How does fear influence the dynamics there and, and really what I came up with is is I see a ton of typical responses and started to characterize them 
to all, all just to understand fear and why we do what we do. And, um, and, and I've kind of j- just characterized them with, with animal figures that I think match up with a lot of the tendencies that we see. And so if you're married and you want to kind of play along right now and figure, figure out what you might be, that, that's cool. Um, I, I'll tell you which one I might be in a minute. But uh, so, so just, just some different animal figures that display our responses to situations that bring fear up in our marriages. And, and I think these are true of other scenarios as well. I've just seen them the most in marriages. And, and so the first one is a tiger, that when there's something that you might be afraid of, your, your initial response is to just attack. You don't ask questions. You don't try to figure it out. You don't try to solve the problem. It's I'm just going to attack and I'm going to scare this fear away with my aggression. The second one is what I call the turtle. What's interesting is I've seen the toughest guys often model turtle behavior. And turtle is I'm going to whenever there's something that I might be afraid of, I'm going to go back into a shell and act like none of this, none of this is going to get me. And I'm going to yell out insults from inside my shell. I'm going to say things about you, but I'm never going to look at any issue myself. Um, And then then we've got the ostrich, and the ostrich is a little bit different than the turtle because the ostrich is is not hiding from the problem. He's just ignoring the problem. He's just pretending that it doesn't exist. He's going to stick his head in the sand, or she's going to stick her head in the sand and just pretend that there's nothing really that causes fear in life. We'll just act like it's not even there. Right, and then, then we got the one that I tend to be, uh, which is the donkey. And uh, you can have a lot of fun with that one. But uh, the donkey is the one who's just going to be emotionally numb to it. That when there's a potential of fear, we're not going to ignore it. We're not going to avoid it. We're not going to pretend that it's not there. We're just not going to feel it. And the, the donkey, uh, I, I think of Eeyore. Like the Eeyore, just that solid monotone, th- this is how life is. Um, and then the last one is what we'll call the snake. And the snake is uh, it's kind of like you, you rise up and you're looking for where you want to attack. So you're not the tiger, you're not going after uh, the other person, but you're the snake looking and saying, what, what's the weakness, where can I get them? Uh, I'm going to strike and, and be, be uh, you know, specific in where I strike. Here's the thing, I've seen these things over and over again, and they're all the result of fear. What happens if this person thinks of me the way that I'm afraid they will? What happens if this person does the things that I don't want them to do? What happens if this person makes me look this way in front of others? They're all fear-based things. And what do, we, what do you really, so, so not just why, where do you line up, but why is fear such a big issue for us? Before we dive into um, the Psalms and, and really Psalm 3, I want us to, to think through this because fear for me, I used to think we just felt the pain or, or the, uh, the pain of embarrassment or the physical pain or the, the pain of an insult. And I thought that was the big thing that drove us and motivated with these different protective mechanisms in fear. And as I thought about that, um, one time in particular, in particular really changed my perspective on fear. And it comes down to a time when I was in the hospital and I was thinking fear is all about pain. It's about avoiding pain. Now, Here's the deal. I'm in the hospital, and I, I'm just, just being real with you. I'm not afraid of needles, but I don't like needles. I don't like needles is my cleaned-up way of saying I'm afraid of needles. I'm going to be honest. Uh, but I don't like needles, and I would say that and, and because I had a fear of them, and I was in the hospital for about a week, and it was becoming clear at the beginning of my stay that I was going to be stuck with a needle 
multiple times each day. It's going to have my blood drawn or, or medicine given to me or, or whatever. And, and so what I learned about fear, at least in my own life, was that as I became more accustomed to the pain that I was experiencing, I didn't, I didn't, it wasn't so much that I was afraid anymore. And that was a fascinating thing because I began to understand exactly what the pain was going to be. It wasn't that the pain stopped hurting. It wasn't that the needle felt different at the end of the week than it did at the beginning of the week. What I figured out was that I knew exactly what was going to happen each time, and I became less afraid because of a certainty I had. So I knew the nurse was going to try to explain some things. I was going to ignore her. I was going to look away and think about like a puppy running through a meadow, uh, something happy that I, uh, that I didn't focus on this. I was going to feel a bit of pain, um, and then she was going to put a Snoopy Band-Aid on it, and it was going to be okay. Um, and what I found was the more that I knew, the less that I feared. And, and that brought me to a reality that I think is true for many of us, that the center of fear is not the expectation of pain, the center of fear is the uncertainty of what might happen. And we live in a world and we live in a life where things might happen all the time. And when we stop being certain and we start to wonder, we start to think that something other than what I want could happen, fear shows up. And tigers show up and donkeys show up and ostriches and snakes and so on. And, and here's, here's what I want us to see this morning. That the uncertainty of fear needs to be navigated by prayer that leans on God. The uncertainty of fear needs to be navigated by prayer that leans on God. And we're going to find that in the Psalms. And I, I want us to, because we're going to be in Psalms the next couple of weeks, I want us to just take a little bit of time to understand the Psalms. Uh, I, I love the Psalms. I hope that every Psalm that we read, so today Psalm 3, I hope every Psalm that we read, you go home and you read prayerfully, you, you read insightfully, you're, you're letting it sink into your heart. Um, I love the way Athanasius says it. He says uh, about the Psalms, he says, the other scriptures speak to us, but the Psalms speak for us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it this way, the more often we pray the Psalms as our own, the more simple and rich our prayer will become. That's my hope through this series, is that the Psalms become a means of our prayers, that we look at them, we spend time in them, we go back to them again and again, read them again and again. The psalm that we're looking at this morning, I probably read 25 times this week, and each time as I read it, God taught me something new and changed my heart and changed my prayers. That's, that's my hope, is that our solution to fear as we navigate through it isn't by, by defense mechanism. Our solution to fear is to navigate our way through it by prayer that leans on God. Now, as we talk about Psalms, there's a reality where there's, there's kind of two great struggles that we can have um, as followers of God when we look at the Psalms. And I, I, wanna, I wanna speak to them because there's times where people from a secular perspective or even from a Christian perspective will say, well, that, the way that you're looking at the Psalms, it, it, it overlooks some of the problems with the Psalms. So I wanna speak to what are some of the, the assumed problems with the, the Psalms that create some struggles for us. Uh, and the first one is this, is, is that when you read the Psalms, some of them sound like no one would ever die or be injured. And, and I would say, well, we know that can't be true. But if you read some of the Psalms, like so specifically consider Psalm 91. You've got Psalm 91 where it's a Psalm about a man who's in battle and he's going, 10,000 people die by my side, but I don't. 
And, and the implication is that if you are a person of faith, then none of the bad things that happen to other people are going to happen to you. And, and so then wh- what do we do with that when somebody says, look, look, uh, Psalm 91 says you're never going to die when you enter battle because you're a believer in God. How do we, how do we respond to that? And I, I would argue, I, I would say, we know that can't possibly be what the psalm is teaching because it overlooks the entire message of the scriptures. Look, Jesus doesn't become a man. Show up on earth and say, hey, I'm going to die for your sins uh, so that you can live with me after you die. Unless, unless you have a faith in God, then whatever happens, that whatever happened could happen to you will never happen to you. Never will you experience anything bad. You'll never experience anything difficult because you, you have a faith like David in, in the Psalms. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says you're going to die. This is a world that's broken down by, by sin, and so then we're going to die, and Jesus offers a solution for life after death. What the psalmist is doing in Psalm 91 is saying that there's a very real reality that the child of God who has faith in God will experience miraculous moments where God protects and preserves them in the line of fire. I wholeheartedly believe that. I think there are times I should have died. Uh, there are times when I talk to other people and I'm like, you totally should have died. Something should have taken your life. That disease, that car, that, that, uh, that you know, person who, who was aggressive toward you, something should have ended your life, but you didn't. I absolutely believe Psalm 91 is 100% true where God miraculously intervenes at moments to protect and preserve our life. I also believe that every one of us will pass away at some point. That while God intervenes at miraculous moments, we each have our own individual appointed time where we're gonna die and we're gonna meet God as our judge and as our savior. And so I think those are the realities that scripture paints. And I, I think we can never emphasize one and not the other. I think God miraculously provides for us again and again throughout life. I don't even think we know it all the time. But I think there's these moments where God protects and preserves. 10,000 might fall at our side, but that doesn't mean I'm never going to fall myself because Jesus came to deal with the fact that I will. So that's the first struggle is that there are psalms that seem like I'm never going to injure, never going to be injured, and never going to die. And the reality is all of Scripture says, no, no, that's not really correct. You're going to. God's just going to protect you up until that point, and then he'll safely carry you home. And I would compare it to like the Allstate commercial. You're in good hands with Allstate. Well, does that mean you're never going to have an insurance issue? You're never going to have to make a claim? No, it just means that when you do, you're in good hands. Does, do the Psalms say you're never going to die? No, it just means that when you do, you're in good hands. Psalm 23 speaks to this. It's not that you're never going to walk through the valley of shadow of death. You're just never going to walk alone, and you're never going to walk in a way that there's not a God who walks with you and loves you and cares all the way through it. So, so that's the first struggle. Second one is... Uh, what do we do with what are called imprecatory prayers? Imprecatory prayers are prayers that call out for judgment on someone else. So you've got David in the psalm. In the psalm we'll look at today, he'll say, uh, slap the jaw of my enemy, shatter the teeth of my enemy. And so what do we do in those scenarios? Because you've got Jesus in the New Testament saying, I tell you, bless those who curse you. And then you've got David in the Psalms and other psalmists going, I'm going to curse those who curse me. So, so what do we do? Um, you know, should we pray, that, pray the same prayers that he does? Well, let's look at it in four different, 
four different things that I think we need to understand about the Psalms and about these imprecatory prayers, these calls for judgment. Um, and, and so let's just kind of work through that. The first idea is this, is that these, these imprecatory prayers are cries for justice at the hands of God. Justice at the hands of God, either through God or through through some government system that God has brought up. But the psalmist is not going, God, I don't like these people, so I'm going to go do something to them. The psalmist is going, God, I don't like what they've done, and so God, you should do something. God, you take up this call. You bring about justice. You fight on my behalf. They're not saying, God, I'm going to go out and I'm going to get even. They're saying, God, would you get even for me? Which brings us to the second one, which is what you see in these psalms is a raw picture of their heart, not the actual outcome. These are men, these are writers pouring out their hearts, saying, God, this is what I've experienced. Would you do something about it? R.C. Sproul says it this way. He says, whenever I read the psalms, I feel like I am eavesdropping on a saint having a personal conversation with God. But th- that's what this is. This is God allowing his creation to find the emotional freedom that comes from being totally honest about what we feel. And, and for myself specifically, I'm not the best at showing emotion. I just read anything showing emotion and it sits a little bit uncomfortably with me. And I've got to be okay with me going, Man, these people are experiencing something intense and this is their outcry. This is their raw heart before God. And I have to look at that and and relate to it as best I can and respect it and and even admire at their ability to be emotionally free but with with the God of the universe and for God to listen to them and care, care about them. I mean, on top of that, these are poetic. They're written with rhythm. The psalm that we're gonna read in a little bit actually has a cadence that steps down to take your heart with it and then steps up to take your heart back. The idea here is that you're, you're joining the psalmist on an emotional journey because these faithful people have been brought to a tipping point by cruelty of others, and they're saying, God, do something. They're also speaking somewhat symbolic. When David says, slap the jaw of my enemy, he's saying, bring upon them the humiliation they brought upon me. When he says, shatter their teeth, he's saying, God, would you render them harmless? What's a tiger without its teeth? I mean, it's got claws, but what's a tiger without its teeth? Third, third thing I want us to know about imprecatory prayers is that the gospel has a means of redirecting our deepest hurts by way of the cross. The psalmists are writing before Jesus has died for the injustices of humanity. They're, they're writing before he's paid the penalty of sin. And so in a very real way, they're going, God, somebody should suffer for this injustice Somebody should be judged for this. And Jesus is going to show up and say, I will. And so when you and I feel the, the onslaught of other people, it's different. Because their sin, as much as it pains us, as much as it's very real, their sin has been paid for on the cross of Jesus Christ. We've got to understand that. We've got to, we've got to live that way. That our motivation is because God gave us life after death when we didn't deserve it. We look at the wrongs of others and when they deserve judgment, we forgive them with grace because the cross stands as our grace. So we live on the different side of the cross. The the last one is, and I think this is huge uh, in understanding these prayers that call out for judgment, is quite honestly, most of us have never been in their shoes. We just haven't. 
We live in a world that's far more affluent and has far less difficulty. And if you compared you know, our difficulty to their difficulty, we'd really be comparing apples to oranges. It's not the same. Uh, John Piper, at least not for most of us anyway, John Piper says this, most Western Christians haven't experienced much in the way of violent mistreatment. And we should let these Psalms help us feel the desperation and helplessness of those who have. Like, so just in the Psalm, and, and we're gonna read it in just a second. Um, just in the Psalm, in Psalm three, you've got David who's a king. And at this point, what's going on in his life, the context and the backstory is he's got a son named Absalom who feels slighted, who, who decides that he's going he's gonna to sabotage his father's kingdom. And so he has this month-long sabotage. And you can read this 1 Samuel 15 to 17 where he sits outside the town gate and anybody who tries to go to the king with a problem, Absalom tries to solve it himself to make him look bad and the king, or make him look good and the king look bad. And, and then Absalom, after months and months of this quiet sabotage, launches a, a siege on the palace, takes over the palace, his, chases his father out of town and sends out 20 to 30,000 people to have a national revolt simply to kill his father. And in Psalm 3, David writes this psalm as he's trying to sleep. As he's trying to go to rest, knowing that there are tens of thousands of people looking to hunt him down and murder him. And, and the question of Psalm 3 is really, how do, you go, how do you go to sleep when you don't know if you'll wake up? How do you do that? How do you go to sleep when you don't know if you'll wake up? Psalm 3 shows us the path. Let's read it. Lord, how many are, our fo are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands Assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessings be on your people. Let's pray. God, I pray that you give us a, a depth of insight from this that we would comprehend from David's prayer how we can pray prayers that lean on you so that we navigate our way through fear that we don't have defense mechanisms that try to solve the problems ourselves, but we look to you and say, God, what are you doing here? What are you teaching me? How are you, how are you guiding me through this? And so is this gonna be a time where you miraculously protect me? Is this gonna be a time where, where you take me home? At the end of the day, I want to see you, and I want you to lead me through this, and we ask that in your son's name, amen. So we said it before, I wanna keep saying it, the uncertainty of fear needs to be navigated through with prayer that leans on God. Now, when I say prayer that leans on God, initially you might have thought, okay, well, that means like we just, we just hope that something happens. No, I'm talking about like you rely on this as if this is your only real outcome. This is your only real solution that you cry out to God, you depend on him. We as a church, we have a value that says we've got a rock solid dependence on God. That's what this psalm is going. David's saying, God, I literally think I'm gonna die tonight. There are people who think I'm dead in the rights. I need you. You're it. 
You're all I can hope for right now. Um, this is this psalm is going is David saying I I can't but I believe you can. I'm scared but I know you're not. I might be tempted to be a tiger, a donkey, an ostrich, a snake, or a turtle, but I understand God who you are, and you are my rock. You're my shield. I, I love it. All right. So here's the thing. Two, two things about this prayer, uh, this prayer that navigates the way through fear, two things about this prayer that I think need to be true of our prayers. And again, I'm fully expecting, I've given you homework. You're gonna read Psalm 3 multiple times this week. You're gonna let it speak to you. You're gonna pray this prayer yourself for your own fear. fear. Um, two, two things that need to be true is the first one is David is really good at picking what he believes. He picks what he believes. He's got the thoughts and the opinions of everybody else around him. We could call that the media. He's got the thoughts of the people close to him. He's got the thoughts of his own heart, but then he's got God himself. And so David's got a choice of who to believe. And he's got to make up his mind as to who to be believe. And I use the phrase pick because I want to take you back to that moment when you were in elementary school and it became time to pick a team and um, and, and you're looking out there and you're looking for who do you want to be on your kickball team. And it's like no doubt that kid who plays soccer and can kick really far, like he's the number one choice. There is always that kid who was going to get picked first. I want your heart to see God in this scenario of who to believe as the one who's going to give you the best chance to win. I want you to look at that scenario of saying, who do I believe? Who am I going to let influence me? Who am I going to give room in my head? Who am I going to let shape my decisions and my emotional status in life? Who am I going to allow to be on my team first? And I, and I honestly want you to have this moment in your heart where, where you're going, well, I know my friends think this. I know people around me think this. I know I am prone to think this, but God thinks this. I know God, and I'm going to pick him first. I'm going to let him be the chief influencer when it comes to situations of adversity and fear because I know he's going to be the one to navigate, my, uh, navigate the way through it. This is David going, there are constant, constantly numerous people that want to kill him and take his life. This isn't David saying, there's a couple of guys that don't like me. There's a couple of people that don't think I made some good decision as king. This is people, this is people who are saying, we're going to kill you. We're going to hunt you down. We're going to make you suffer. We're going to publicly embarrass you and murder you. We're going to do this. I mean, you talk, about, you talk about somebody who's got a reason for a sleepless night. This is David. David's not having some trouble because he's feeling some anxiety over a, a decision in life. David can't sleep because he's got 20,000 assassins surrounding him. You want a prayer that helps you sleep in a moment like that? It comes because we understand that we pick what God believes out of all the plethora of things that we could choose to look at and be influenced. It's going, God, I rely on you. I depend on you. I truly, truly see you as my only rock right now. And so I'm going to build my life. I'm going to build my thoughts on top of you where, where David, David is encouraging us to say the state of your heart what you feel, what you think, what drives you, the state of your heart needs to be ruled by the omniscience, the all-knowingness, the omnipotence, the power of God. You, the state of your heart needs to be ruled by God and his abilities, 
not the possibility of what other, think, other people think might happen. What gets to rule your heart? Pick what you believe and then lean on it. Not a little bit, but lean on it as if it alone can carry you out. Second, second thing about this prayer that should, that should change and shape our prayers is that when you lean on God, I, I need you to know that you lean into the shelter of God. And there's three ways that David talks about what God does as a shelter. Uh, he, he talks about him as a shield. He talks about him as his glory. And then he talks about him as his place of rest. And just that idea of rest in the middle of us all, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, the shield is, is this idea of be a shield about me protect me in a way that I can't protect myself. This is David using an analogy that would have been precious to him. You've got you've to remember, David's a military guy. He's experienced battle and attack many times before, and David has known the value of a shield firsthand. Shields have saved his life. I mean, he's, he's going into battle, and he's going, wait a second, I forgot my shield. That'd be a bad idea. And in this circumstance, he understands that his greatest shield isn't a physical, literal shield. It's God himself. And he understands that God offers that protective nature, that this is that, God, God I'm going to need that miraculous moment right now. I'm going to need you to protect me, that God is his shield. And then he, then he says something that's really, really very interesting to think about, and, and different Different thinkers look at this, different commentaries look at this, and they kind of struggle with this idea. Why does David say, you're my glory? You're my glory. And, and the more that I study that, the more I think, this is really David going, God, I'm a person who is a position of king. I have people look up to me and be impressed with me all the time. They have festivals in my honor. They have celebrations in my honor. They sing songs in my honor. They give me gifts. People are impressed with me. I get a lot of glory from other people. And right now it's gone. And there's nobody throwing a celebration for me. There's nobody giving me a gift. They might want to give me a sword, not as a gift. They might want to give it to me to take my life. David's going, nobody has any room for glory. Nobody has any sort of respect or honor for me. And so God, for those things, I look to you. You are my glory. When we're in fear, the uncertainty of fear, what often fades with it is the glory that other people look at us with. The, the honor, the respect, the dignity, the value that other people look at us. And there's something so powerful about what David says when he says, God, you are my glory. I get my validation, I get my vindication, I get my value from you. What you say about me as a child of yours, as somebody who's a recipient of your love, I fully look to you for my glory. Man, I look at those things in life, and again, we could go back to the marriage setting, we could go back to workplace dynamics. How much of what you feel upset about when you feel infringed upon by somebody else or you feel offended by somebody else, how much of it is because your glory has suffered? Or somebody took a shot at you or they assumed something of you that you didn't like, your glory took a hit. And David's going, if you want to have a prayer, that lets you sleep in a time of fear, you want to navigate through your, your way through fear, you've got to pray a prayer that says, God, you're my glory. You, that, that's it. I'm not going to look to other people. And when he does those two things, when he says, God, you're my shield, you're my glory, we get to the third one, which is, he, <laughs> this just amazes me. I lie down to sleep. The last thing I'm going to do when there are 20,000 plus assassins looking for me is take a nap. 
I mean, I'm not sleeping at all. I'm looking around from every direction. Now, on every side, it says, I'm looking around to say, w- w- how can I solve this problem? David goes to sleep. And it's just so incredibly powerful for, for us to think about this reality that David trusts that God works while he sleeps. David knows. David knows that God, God works even while he sleeps. I love Psalm 3. I love it because it kind of paints God as, as a doctor to dress our wounds. He's a counselor to listen to that raw, that raw emotional freedom that we can just pour out to him. He's a defender. He's a savior. And I, I hope we look at Psalm 3 and, and I hope we can find a peace that lets us sleep in times of fear, that lets us find a true, true rest in him. Now, I love the way C.S. Lewis says it when he talks about the Psalms. He says, the most valuable thing the Psalms do for me is to express the same delight in God which made David dance. Now, SVC, I hope we're a church that so delights in God that even in the presence of adversity, we can not only sleep and rest in him, but we could even delight and dance with him. I love you guys. I can't wait to see you again. This needs to be our prayer in times of adversity. We're, God, we're going, God, I need you. I lean on you. I want to rest. I want your protection. I even want to dance with you when the world seems like it's falling apart because you have not changed. Let's pray. God, you are incredible. I love you. I pray that our prayers would be shaped by this, that we would look at the way the psalmist pray, that we would even pray these ourselves to you and that it would allow us to be emotionally honest with you, and that we'd fully lean on you in a way that they do. And we ask that in your son's name. Amen.